Well, hey everyone, Uh, in today's passage in Mark chapter one, the Bible draws a, a line in the sand. Jesus is the king or he's nothing. Like any nonsense that Jesus is just a teacher, or just a good moral figure, or a, a flash-in-the-pan celebrity who could draw a big crowd back in the day, that that is all put to rest today. Right off the bat, our author, Mark, draws this line that, that Jesus is either the king or he's nothing. There's no in-between. And today might be a line in the sand for some of you too, because th- this passage has a lot more going on than just a docile little scene in the Judean wilderness where a meek and lowly man gets baptized in a river. That This passage is a declaration from heaven that the world will never be the same again. That, that the dawning of the last age of history is upon us. The final era of God's redemptive work and that the savior that we've been waiting for has now arrived. The leader of humanity, the leader of our lives, And so the title of my message today is The Leader We've Been Waiting For. And some of you have been waiting for the arrival of Jesus for your whole life. The the first clue is often this feeling that something is missing. The things that you've tried to fill your life with, to bring meaning and purpose and satisfaction, that they just haven't worked and there's this kind of emptiness in you. You have this hole in your heart. And what you're really longing for and what you're waiting for is not the next thrill or not the next high, it's not the next relationship or promotion. What, What you're really longing for is Jesus. And I'm just convinced that for many of you, something is going to click. It's going to happen. Maybe today, maybe it's in the coming weeks or the coming months as we go through Mark. But but your eyes are going to open and your heart is going to be receptive. And you're going to submit your life to Jesus' leadership. You're going to commit yourself to following him. And it's going to maybe hit you all at once. And and you'll realize as you look into the rearview mirror of your life that it's Jesus you've been waiting for all along. That's today's big idea. Jesus is the leader we've been waiting for. And I really want to challenge you, all of you, to ask yourself today, what role is Jesus playing in my life? Like, is Jesus a consultant? Is he a teacher? Is he a moral example? Is he a friend? Is he a counselor? Is he a guide? Is he he like a vice principal? Some distant, impersonal force? Like, who is Jesus to you? And I want to suggest that he's got to be your leader. He's your king or he's nothing. So, so we're going to look at five short verses today in Mark 1, 9 through 13, uh, but they pack a punch. You can get there in your Bible or device, Mark 1. But th- this event is the baptism of Jesus, and it occurs in all four Gospels, which means it has great significance. And Mark, in his great economy of style, he, he stuffs the whole event into five verses and adds one on. In fact, one could argue that the whole history of the world Uh, Remember last week we met John the Baptist uh, in the wilderness. The whole history of the world is kind of stuffed into this passage. And last week John was the lone actor on the stage creating anticipation for another who is coming. And people were coming from far and wide from Jerusalem and the whole Judean countryside to see this phenomenon that John was preaching about. And today the great leader Jesus enters the scene. And I want to talk today about three ways that Jesus' baptism compels us to follow him. So here's the first way. At his baptism, Jesus launched a world-changing ministry. I want you to look at uh, uh, verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Again, (laughs) in true Mark fashion, just no fluff whatsoever, no details whatsoever, no fanfare, just straight to the point. With the crowds pressing in who have come from Judea and Jerusalem, the camera lens shifts in verse 9 to just one person arriving from Galilee. Jesus appears in the desert and he walks up to John and he gets baptized in the river. Now, up until this point, Jesus was flying under the radar. He was growing and maturing from from boyhood into manhood. 
And, and that he came from Nazareth reminds us of Jesus' humble beginnings in a town that didn't even register on most historical maps. It's as unpowerful of an entrance that a powerful person could have. But this moment is the turning of the page for Jesus. It's his public launch. His baptism is the first great event of Jesus' ministry. And so this ended his work as a carpenter, and it started his work as an itinerant teacher and healer and proclaimer of the good news. Jesus himself would later point back to the significance of this baptism event. So, so later, when the, the religious leaders were, were going to confront him, after his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem, after cleansing the temple, they asked him by what authority he performs his ministry. And Jesus answers this way in Mark eleven thirty. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And so he got them all spun around with this question. But the point is, Jesus himself knew this moment, his baptism was a big deal. The disciples were also understood that, that Jesus' baptism marked the inauguration of his ministry over in Acts 1, 21 and 22 when they were choosing a new apostle to replace Judas. They said, well, we have to choose one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Look at, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. You see what they're doing there? They're, they're marking the beginning and end. They're marking the end of Jesus' earthly ministry with the ascension up into heaven and the beginning of his ministry at John's baptism. And so this world-changing ministry was, was like nothing that the world had ever seen before. He took the earth by storm with his preaching and his healing and his demonstration of power over humanity and over nature and over demons. And Jesus, in his three years of public ministry, he changed the whole course of human history. And it started at his baptism. But, but why did Jesus come to be baptized? It's, John's baptism was called a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus certainly didn't need to be baptized. <laughs> he was, didn't have any sin. And so why was he baptized? Well, I think there are two key reasons. One is to, to continue to identify with sinners. Like if Jesus could go to the cross and be identified with sinners, why couldn't he also go into the Jordan River and be identified with sinners? He, he affirmed both aspects of, of repentance, a turning from sin, which he did, and a complete trust in God, which he also did. But there's a second reason. I think Jesus was also baptized as an example to believers. Jesus knew that baptism would be this enduring symbol of the Christian faith. He told us to do it in the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then immediately in the early church, we see baptism is being practiced by those who come to faith in Christ. Over and over again in Acts, people would repent from their sins, it says, and then be baptized. Notice, we see it always happening among those who are making their own decision, a public declaration of personal allegiance, which is why we don't practice infant baptism here at Grace. In fact, a couple of decades later, it would start to become dangerous to be baptized. When you were baptized, it marked you with a kind of stigma. Baptism meant that you would be expelled, kicked out from the synagogue where you grew up. It meant losing your job. It meant being disowned by your family. It meant sometimes prison, sometimes martyrdom. Baptism has always been a big deal. And so whenever we offer the opportunity for believers to get baptized, which is next week, by the way, I sometimes get the question, do I have to be baptized in order to go to heaven? Well, the answer is technically no. We, we know the criminal on the cross wasn't baptized and he went to paradise with Jesus, but that wasn't exactly normal circumstances. 
But when I get this question, I just have bigger concerns with the question itself. Here's what it feels like. It feels like you're saying, Jesus, I know that you suffered for me. I know that you died on the cross for me. I know that you clearly commanded that all of your followers are to be baptized as a way of declaring our devotion to you and being part of your family. I know that you yourself got baptized when you didn't need to as an example for people like me about what is to be expected. But Jesus, here's the thing. I don't want to get baptized. And so I'm going to accept your sacrifice to get me into heaven. But when it comes to obeying you and the very first thing you asked of me and publicly declaring to my friends and family that, that my ultimate devotion is to you, when it comes to obeying you in this simple act, I'm going to take a pass. I'm, I'm going to disobey you. And listen, I'm saying in an extreme way, but this is not a great way to launch into your spiritual life. So, so let me encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've never been baptized as a believer, it's an amazing moment. Like when you stand in front of a congregation and take that step, it's a moment of unbridled rejoicing for everyone who sees it, including you. And if you've been waiting to be baptized, stop waiting. Next week is the week. You can go over to whoisgrace.com baptism. You can find everything there that you need to get registered. Now, Back out of the rabbit hole because Mark doesn't even raise these issues that I'm raising. Because to Mark, the baptism itself isn't even the main story of this account. It's simply an occasion that God used to approve and, and confirm the world-changing ministry of Jesus. Jesus' baptism is just the precursor for what is about to come. And so now the real show begins. So, so here's the second way Jesus' baptism compels us to follow him. In his baptism, Jesus declares... His eternity-changing salvation. Look at verse 10. It says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So, so here we have Jesus as the, the one the world has been waiting for. This is God now declaring to the world that salvation has come through Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is a cosmic event. A new age of redemption has dawned. And notice the, the whole trinity shows up for this one. Jesus is in the water. The spirit descended like a dove. The father spoke from heaven. I said earlier that these five verses could, could actually kind of sum up the history of the world. Well, it's because... Mark, with this reference to the Trinity, is intentionally drawing us back to the creation account, all the way back in Genesis 1. We, we see God creating, and we see the Spirit hovering. The Hebrew word for hovering is like fluttering, like a bird, maybe a dove, above the face of the unformed waters. And then there's a voice that speaks into existence, says, let there be light. And we find out in John who that voice is. The, the word in the creation account was Jesus. And so through his imagery here, what Mark is doing is he's drawing us back. He's pointing us to the original creation story where you had the Father and you had the Word, the Son, and you had the Holy Spirit fluttering like a dove above the deep. And Mark's point is just like the original creation of the world. And just like that was a project of the triune God, so this recreation of the world, the salvation of the world, the renewal of the world, the redemption of the world that is beginning right now, that is also a project in the same way of the triune God, equal in importance to what the Trinity did the very first time around. Now, in this baptism event, there are three stunning demonstrations that Jesus is the one and that salvation has come. Here's the first one. It says, the heavens were ripped open. 
You see that in verse 10? He saw the heavens being torn open. Now notice, the heavens didn't just open on their own. They were torn open. They were ripped open. And this kind of language is only used for cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power. The the two times that Mark uses this phrase are here and then when the temple curtain is torn in two at the death of Christ in chapter 15. Both instances reveal Jesus as the Son of God with with a great show of power. The, The other time that we'll see this language in the Bible is in the book of Revelation when Christ will come charging through the clouds in his triumphant return. And so this baptism moment is actually a prelude, the first act, of the second coming of Jesus. It is an apocalyptic event. This means that the current era is over, that we've entered the last days. The fact that Mark uses this language here is evidence that the Messianic age has begun and King Jesus has arrived. It reminds us of the hope of Isaiah and the cry of the Old Testament prophets as they eagerly awaited the promised Messiah. In fact, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64:1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would rip or tear the heavens, and that you would come down, and that the mountains might quake at your presence. This prophecy, this longing of Isaiah has now come to pass. And so can you just picture it in your mind? Can you picture Jesus standing on the banks of the Jordan River? Just imagine it right now. This, this is a river that has been parted on multiple occasions throughout Israel's history. It was parted to, to demonstrate God's faithfulness and power. But this time, God goes a step further. The river doesn't get parted. The river remains intact. Something from far more impressive is cut into. The dome of heaven itself, the, the barrier between heaven and earth is now torn apart and heaven breaks in and now God is in our midst and on the loose in the world. And and so Jesus, remember, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, he said, pray it this way. Pray for the inbreaking kingdom of God. God, may, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is up there in heaven. Let up there come down here. And so we're getting a preview of all of that at this baptism event. The heavens are ripped open and God came down. And you know, this idea of God coming down is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique among world religions. Some of you know we we dropped our daughter Aiden off at college a few weeks ago now. So I've been doing a lot of reminiscing. uh, And I had, uh, looking back through some of my journals, I'd written down in one of my journals from when she was a very little girl, that the feeling of coming home as a dad after a long trip away and having my daughter kind of joyfully run over to me with both arms raised up as high as they could go to greet me. You parents might know this feeling. And, and every time in that moment, you as a parent, I, and I as a parent, I had a choice. I could either go down to her level or I could make her come up to mine. And, and what was she after in that moment with her arms up like that? Well, obviously, she wanted my love and affection. She wanted me to stoop down and my acceptance and to pick her up and to hug her and to spin her around in my arms. But imagine if I had said in that moment, sorry, honey, you're on your own. Good luck. But you have to figure out how to get up here, get, how to get up to my level before I give you a hug. What would happen? Well, pretty soon her joy and excitement would turn into frustration and probably tears. Imagine if I just looked down at her and say, you can cry all you want, but you're going to have to claw, you're going to have to scratch, you're going to have to climb up my leg, struggle your way up here to, to earn my love, to earn my hug. Now, not to be overly simplistic, but most religions of the world 
have us as children trying to get up to God, to earn his love, maybe through meditation, maybe through praying five times a day, facing in a certain direction, maybe through self-actualizing or, or filling up enough buckets of karma to somehow curry his favor. But, but what we have here in this account is this ripping of heaven is, is the God of the Bible bending down, God coming down to our level and showing us his love so that he might lift us back up to his. So the heavens are ripped open. The second stunning demonstration that salvation has come is that the spirit descended on him. You see that in verse 10, the spirit descending on him like a dove. So, so the original language actually goes further than our translation. Instead of descending on him, it gives us the sense that the spirit descended into him which signifies Jesus' complete filling and equipping for ministry by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that Jesus received the Spirit here as if he didn't have the Spirit with him throughout all of his growing up years. However, the Spirit was fully revealed here to mankind. And, and so you may ask, well, what's the symbolism of the dove? Well, let me just say there's a bunch of interpretations for what the dove represents. So, so maybe it harkens back to the dove from Noah's Ark, which symbolized, you know, deliverance from a deadly flood, or maybe uh, peace, since a dove has no talons. They, they were known to symbolize wisdom and innocence and other things. And so there's a bunch of things that the dove could mean. But as I said a moment ago, our minds are taken back to Genesis and the Trinity and the Spirit hovering over the waters like a bird or a dove. I, I think this is more the point, that once again, God is creating. He, he's taking initiative to bring order out of chaos. And so the Spirit's arrival in the wilderness that day demonstrates a decision made long ago in the eternal council of the Trinity that the triune God decided that this is how salvation will come upon the earth. And not only has the ministry of Jesus now begun, but the age of the Holy Spirit has now begun as well. We're going to dive into that much deeper as we go through Mark. But suffice it to say that Jesus goes on to live what we would call a spirit-filled life. And we too are called to live a Holy Spirit-filled life in the same way, where the Holy Spirit is directing us and guiding us and convicting us of sin and acting as our conscience and bringing power to our lives and healing to our lives and answers to our prayers. He is a counselor, he is a comforter, he's a helper, and he helps us to read and understand the scriptures. He brings our prayers before God the Father. He administers spiritual gifts to people in the church. He leads us into righteousness and intimacy with the Father. So, yes, salvation has come to earth, and with it, the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit is upon us. The third demonstration of Jesus, that Jesus is the one and salvation has come, is this, that God the Father spoke. So it says in verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Remember, I mentioned last week that God had stopped speaking to his people during what's called the intertestamental period. That's the time between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There were no more prophets during that time. God was essentially silent. And so it's a big deal for Mark to declare here that for the first time in 400 years, God speaks directly to his people. He started with John, the prophet, in the form of Elijah. But now, in his own voice from heaven, God speaks. And what does he say? Well, what are the words that God chooses after this long period of silence? Well, he uses the opportunity to unmistakably identify Jesus as his son. 
See, through Mark, as we go through the book, God will only speak overtly three times. One is here at the baptism of Jesus, one is at the transfiguration of Jesus, and one is as Jesus is going to the cross. And so when the heavens open and God the Father speaks, it is a very big deal. It's a significant moment in the history of the world. And I just want to say, can you imagine being there? Can you imagine what the, the booming voice of God sounds like? And notice that the, the father's declaring his love for his son before any ministry is accomplished. I think this is important. Before any healings, before any teachings, before any casting out of demons, before any crucifixions, God's saying, you're my beloved, I love you. We must be reminded of this truth often because it's another aspect that differentiates our faith, Christianity, from other religions. And that is that the love of God is not based on your performance. The love of God is not de dependent upon anything that you can do for him or give to him or sacrifice in his name. The love of God is solely based on the love of God. <laughs> this is why Christianity is called a relationship, not a religion. Religion says that you need to earn your way to God's love through rituals and recitations. Relationship says that God loves you because God is love. Well, there's one more layer to this. The language here that God speaks, when he says, you're my beloved son, it resembles language from Psalm chapter two. It's the same language that was used in the enthronement of kings in Israel during their coronation ceremony. Psalm two, you see, points us forward to, to the ultimate coronation for the royal Messiah. And so all of the imperfect kings who had reigned over Israel would be fully realized finally in the Messiah, Jesus, the one true king. And so God draws on this familiar language from Psalm 2 at the baptism of Jesus so that people's minds would imagine a kingly coronation ceremony. And this brings up one of the themes in Mark that we talked about last week, Son of God and Son of Man. We consistently see both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And every time we see it, we should step back and say, there has never been anyone like Jesus. Last week, John the Baptist said, one who is greater than me is coming. Well, today he's here. And I want to go back to that opening question. Who is Jesus to you? Because I'm convinced that he is the leader we've all been waiting for. God is saying that no category that you've ever created can contain Jesus. The king is here, so don't miss it. I mean, can you imagine yourself at the beach? Here in Erie, we have this beautiful state park called Presque Isle with 11 beaches. And so imagine that you're at the beach and everyone is swimming and suddenly the sky cracks open and, and a bird flies down and rests on one of the swimmer's heads and God's voice booms from heaven saying, this is the one, you'd better follow him. I mean, that would get your attention. And that's what's happening here. I don't know where you're coming from spiritually today, but I'm certain there are many of you who haven't fully surrendered your heart to Christ. And if I could sit down across a table from you and ask why, I'm sure that you could list off your reasons. And I'll bet you would have some good reasons. Maybe they're theological. Like, What's the deal with hell? Why do bad things happen to good people? And isn't the Bible full of errors? And, and, and you know, probably some personal reasons too. Why would God let this or that happen to me? And then fill in the blank. I'll be the first to say, surrendering your life to Jesus is not easy. It, it should never, ever be taken lightly. It must be seriously weighed and considered. But I want to bring you back to, to the foundational question that you have to answer. Who is Jesus? And what are you going to do with him? I mean, it's interesting to talk about stuff like, you know, how did they get dinosaurs in the ark or whatever. But in the end, <laughs> you need to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? What happened back there? 
Why has history reorganized itself around this one life? How did this man from a nobody place, a nowhere place, turn the whole earth upside down? And why is there an empty tomb over there in the Middle East where, where a body is supposed to be laid? You see, Christianity is not grounded in some philosophy. It's not grounded in our man-made ability to figure stuff out. It is based in history. It's based on stuff that actually happened. And the key event is that God came to earth in the form of a man named Jesus. And he offered us a salvation that we desperately need more than anything else in this life. And so what we're reading about today is the inaugural event of the ministry of Jesus Christ, ushering in the kingdom of God. That the baptism of Jesus was a cosmic announcement that salvation has come to the earth through the life of Jesus. And so we're saying there are three ways Jesus' baptism compels us to follow him. First, Jesus launched a world-changing ministry. Second, Jesus declared his eternity-changing salvation. Here's the third way that we're compelled to follow him. After his baptism, Jesus waged war against evil. Notice Mark 1.12 says that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, we're gonna talk about this theme much more in the weeks to come, but we've been calling it the cosmic conflict theme. And let me here introduce it because this is where Mark introduces it. I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit's descent on Jesus in the river does not induce a state of inner tranquility. The Spirit actually drives him deeper into the desolate desert and into the clutches of Satan himself. This was God's idea. What happened to Jesus in the wilderness was as divinely orchestrated as what happened to him in the Jordan River. This reminds us of God's sovereignty. Even though an incredible, history-altering ministry was ahead for Jesus, sometimes it's part of God's plan to expose his children to testing. Some of you, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see over this little section a, a heading title that says, uh, The Temptation of Jesus. That's not totally accurate, since the temptation is just a small part of what Jesus actually goes through in the desert. S Satan tempts, God tests, and there's a difference. Tempting is intended to bring you down. Testing is intended to build you up. And, and so for Jesus, he's, he's experiencing both. And it went on for 40 days. By the way, 40 is an important number. 40 looks back in the Old Testament to Moses and his time on Mount Sinai. 40 looks back to Elijah's journey to Mount Horeb. 40 looks back to Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering. All of these things happened in the wilderness because the wilderness was seen as a proving ground. It was a, it was a test of faithfulness. And what Mark wants us to see here is that unlike the others who had faced the wilderness and failed the test, Jesus passed with flying colors. Now, one of the things that may have caught your attention as I read that passage was, was the, the wild animals. And you're thinking, what's the deal with the wild animals? Well, there are a bunch of interpretations around this too. I won't get into them all. I'll just say that, that I believe that the simplest explanation is that wild animals in the scriptures usually represent danger. So, so here, it's logical. If you're out in the middle of the wilderness for 40 days, you're probably going to run across some wildlife that wants to kill you. So the danger of the animals, you notice, is contrasted with the care of the angels. Remember, Mark is writing in the context of early Christian persecution. Christian believers, especially in Rome, knew what it was like to be in danger from devouring dogs. And Mark is saying, guys, nothing that you could suffer at the hands of Nero or anyone else 
is alien to the experience of Jesus. Nothing that you can suffer, no trial or temptation that you face is foreign to Jesus. His time of testing in the wilderness reminds us that every great man or woman of God must go through a time of testing. Some of you are there. Some of you have been there. Maybe your marriage is being tested. It's just been so difficult. For some of you, you're tested in your finances. Times have been tough and you're tempted then to cut corners. Maybe some of you got bad health news and you're tempted to turn inward or get depressed or get angry at God. For some of you, it's insecurity or it's loneliness or it's isolation. And listen, I want to be clear. This passage is not a how-to in dealing with those temptations. But the passage is a reminder that Jesus is greater. It is a reminder that Jesus is stronger, that Jesus is the victor, that he will win, and that he is in the process of defeating the evil one. So so just as God attended to Jesus with angels, so he will not be far away from you during your times of testing as well. Now, other gospel writers like Matthew give much more detail around the temptation of Jesus. They also put a nice little bow on it at the end with Jesus reciting scriptures back to the devil to counteract every one of Satan's attacks, but not Mark. Listen, there are some great lessons about resisting temptation in those other accounts, but ultimately what Mark does is he brings us back to the fact that the passage is not about us and not about how to resist temptation. It's about Jesus waging and winning the war against evil. The the term that he uses, Satan, here is a term that means adversary. We're being introduced to the adversary. We're being introduced to a titanic power struggle between the true king and the prince of the forces of evil. And this campaign to put the evil genie back into the bottle has now begun in the ministry of Jesus. See, it's not enough for Jesus just to win over human hearts and for for us to repent and to confess our sins and such. Evil forces who have organized under the prince of the power of the air must also be defeated before the kingdom of God can truly be established on earth. And so Mark doesn't report the end of the temptation. He doesn't tie it up in a nice little bow. Jesus isn't reciting Bible verses. Mark leaves it open-ended. I believe because he wants us to know that this battle is going to continue throughout the rest of the gospel. That evil is going to appear again and again as demons, sometimes as religious leaders, sometimes even the disciples themselves. I said at the beginning, today might be a line in the sand moment for some of you. And so I want to invite you to respond. But before I do that, just let me give a next step for everyone. One of the themes in our text today that I mentioned was the Son of God and Son of Man theme. And there's a discipleship prompt at our website that goes along with this theme, Son of God, Son of Man. And it it simply asks this question, how does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? If Jesus is the leader we've all been waiting for, I want you to just ask that question, will you? I want you to just see how the Spirit of God might speak to you as you ask and answer that question this week. But I also now want to turn my attention to some of you who have never considered the fact that that this Jesus, this King, is the leader that you've been waiting for your whole life. Maybe you've tried to lead yourself all by yourself. I think we all know how that usually ends up. And I remind you today that one of the clearest teachings of the Bible is that there will one day be a day of reckoning. And on that day, all of humanity will be divided into two camps. Those who acknowledge the person and work of Jesus, they are the ones who followed him and believed in him and worshiped him, staked their lives in eternity on him. And then there's a second camp of those who ignored or resisted or rebelled against Jesus. But a choice will be made by everyone. And more pertinent to our discussion today is that you're going to be in one of those two camps and your eternity will be determined by which one you're in. 
And see, see, Jesus comes at us in such a way that it's impossible to stay undecided for very long. And some of you may begin to, to clarify your stance today. You, you kind of need a DTR moment, a define the relationship moment. Who is he to you, really? Have you treated him like a consultant? Have you treated him like a buddy or a pal? Uh, have you treated him like a policeman that you just generally try to avoid? Or maybe you're more of an admirer of Jesus than you are a follower. You admire him from a distance. You check in on him from time to time, but, but never really going all in. Maybe our time together this morning would, would change the trajectory of your life. That as a result of your time here, that you may decide for the very first time to believe in him, to follow him, to worship him, and yes, to surrender your whole life to his relentless grace. Or you could go the other way. You could begin to distance yourself from him. But you can't stay undecided for very long because he comes at you with his outrageous claims. And then he lets you decide which way you will go. The Bible is clear that between the time you're born and the time you die, you have to make a decision about Jesus. If you wait till afterward, it's too late. So if you're at one of our locations today, I wanna to release you back to your live host for a time of commitment. If you're watching on a screen, just hang right in there with me for, for another moment. Jesus is the leader we've all been waiting for. Will you surrender your life to his today? I love you guys.